Kinesis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. My name is Scott Allen, and I am the host of Phronesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. I am an Associate Professor of Management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, a speaker, a nonprofit founder, and the host of two podcasts. I'm also a husband and dad of three. You just heard from Kate, my daughter, who wrote and performed the Phronesis intro. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover timely, relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Now, I am proud to share that Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ilaglobalnetwork.org. If you like what we're up to, please click subscribe so you can stay up to date as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others. And now, today's show. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, everybody. This is Scott Allen. And you are listening to Phrenesis. Today I have Beth Zemsky. Beth, before I formally introduce you, I told you I was going to surprise you a little bit as before we started. So are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. So I was so excited to read in your bio that you've taught in the Family Social Science Program at the University of Minnesota. That was my degree. I didn't that was know my that. undergraduate degree. I teach in a college of business, but my undergraduate degree was family social science. You know what? I think that makes perfect sense. I do. Yes. It makes perfect yes. sense. So um, uh, to your listeners, you've got my bio. They haven't heard it yet, but I used to work as a clinician. I used to work as a psychotherapist and I do organ I do intercultural organizational development now. And Scott, here's a little piece. My clinical specialty was working with like a lot of therapists about abuse, but I work with perpetrators of violence right? And so oh, wow. my ability to be completely comfortable with conflict in systems, like com yes. completely it enhances my organizational development work. Because the, the stuff we learn in family systems, it helps in organizations. Exactly. Exactly. So my parents had been through a divorce and I got to college at the University of Minnesota, and I really liked some of the psychology classes, and I really liked some of the sociology classes, but I didn't you know, completely resonate with either one. I was a little bit of a lost soul as to what I was going to do. And so some of my – so a friend of mine, I was, I was working at Northrop Auditorium, right? It was probably a night when John Denver was playing, and I was speaking with another usher, and <laughs> – and so, and and she said to me, "Well, you know, there's this family family social science program you could look into. It's on St. Paul campus, and you can you can explore that." And I fell in love. It was an incredible degree. It was an important degree for me. And I mean, it was just a wonderful uh, couple of years. I believe it is that I was in those specific courses. But I and I had my social work courses, and I loved those. But you are exactly right. I mean, I see family systems theory. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's it's small group work, it's dialogue, it's conversation. And so I 
was so excited to see that. So you were surprised, weren't you? Yeah, I was. Thank you for that. I, I love surprises <laughs> in conversation, right? Because you know, I would otherwise have not have talked about my clinical background or that I learned about violence and conflict from working with abusive folks, right? And I just think it's such an important wow. piece of being able to work in systems is that we're comfortable with conflict. We understand where it comes from and we understand systems. Well, Beth, I'm so excited for our conversation today. For our listeners... Uh, Beth Zemsky, she is, she's many things. She is an individual who is doing work in, and has done work in a lot of different contexts. So I'm going to share a little bit about her and I will, I'll have more about her in our show notes so that you can explore and connect with her. But she comes to her work out of a continued commitment to engage people in learning that moves them to understand critical social and cultural issues. Building on best practice approaches, Beth specializes in intercultural organizational development with organizations working towards racial justice, social change, structural transformation, and she works with any number of different organizations, foundations, nonprofits, education, health, faith-based organizations focused on social change. She has, as we've discussed, she's served as a psychotherapist. She has worked at the University of Minnesota doing leadership and organization development. She is an educator and she is a consultant. And Beth, you received an award in 2015 and I was poking around the internet. And that's the wonderful thing about the internet. And I came across, a, it was a theme for the night. It was Outfront Minnesota was the organization and you had received the Legacy Award. And there was a quote kind of, as I understand it, framing the evening, and it just really stood out to me. And I would love for you to react to this quote a little bit. It's from uh, Audrey Lord, And she said, when I dare to be powerful, to use my strength in the service of my vision, then it becomes less and less important whether I'm afraid. And for me, oftentimes, even on this podcast, you know, Leadership can be framed as warm fuzzies, chocolate bars, and strolls through the tulips. And it's not. At times, it's stressful. It's scary. It's frustrating. It's incredibly difficult. And so how do you think about that quote? And how do you think about your work in relation to that quote? Thank you for bringing Audrey Lord into the beginning of this. She's, she was such an inspiration and so powerful as a poet and a writer. So I want to give you another, I'm not going to quote it exactly right, but another Audrey Lord quote as a way to begin to answer your question, Scott. So Audrey Lord had cancer and she wrote a book called Cancer Journals. And the basic premise of Cancel Journals was that it was not her words as a black lesbian writer poet that was going to kill her. So she basically said, it was not our words that were going to kill us. It's our silences. And as I think about my own life and my work as whether it's a clinician or an organizational leader or an activist, which is the context of what that award was about is it's really about how do I speak as a, as a leader, as a member of a movement, as somebody who's a follower? How do I speak my truth? How do I make space for other people to speak their truth? How do we sort of lean in with authenticity to the complexity of experiences? So that's a really important piece for me. And, and Scott, if, if I may, I'll tell you a little bit about my history with that 
be helpful? Please, please. Yeah. So I was trained as as a psychotherapist, right? And and there is a way, you know, you talked about your family getting divorced. You know, there is a way, this funny way in which like those of us who go into clinical work, we're like working at our own family issues. But, you know, that, <laughs> that aside, so I thought I was going to be a therapist. And I, you know, as I said, did the work therapists do. I was working in rape and sexual abuse, domestic violence, chemical dependency, you know, the work that brings people to therapy. And I moved to Minnesota, where I live now and in 1986, and I was hired explicitly to work in a sliding fee scale therapy organization to work with um, folks in the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer community. This was the 80s. So there were not a lot of services around. And it was the mid 80s, just as HIV was beginning. And I had been reading Orgy Lord. I'd had the good fortune of meeting Orgy Lord. I had read the cancer journals. I was deeply thinking about how it's not our words, it's our silences, just as HIV hit. And we didn't have the language back then of intersectionality. Like that, that's a word that Kimberly Crenshaw and other both activists and academics have given us to understand the intersection of identities and systems of oppression. But the early days of HIV, that's what it was. It was about men who had sex with men who were all represented as white, IV drug users who's all represented as black, and Haitians who were back in the day thought of as the vectors of infection. So it was sexuality, race, and immigration sound familiar? <laughs> it's kind of the stuff we're dealing yeah. with now, right? I thought maybe I was even a pretty good therapist, but I was kind of sending my clients back out to the trenches of a systemic battle we were desperately losing. Because back in the day, the president at the time, Reagan, didn't even say the word HIV till 1986, till over, well over 100,000 people had died. So there was like no attention. So this is not my first pandemic. And so I thought, you know, even though I'm doing direct practice work, I need to sort of think about what is the systemic battle that the people who are coming into my office, I could patch them up, I can help them feel empowered, I could help them anchor in their identities, but what was the systemic battles of oppression I was sending them out to? On a personal note, at the same time, my twin brother was diagnosed with HIV in New York City. Yeah, so he, he died on September 1st, 1990. So on a personal level, I was deeply engaged around health crisis, systems not working, homophobia, racism that was literally killing us. And the slogan of ACT UP, which you might remember, was silence equals death. So, and yeah. it was literal that silence equals death. So part of that yeah. quote from Audrey Lord was just like, what is it? really? Are we not going to speak? Are we not going to say what's true to us when our very lives are dependent on? Like this wasn't an academic kind of understanding of the quote. It was a a very visceral, physical, watching my brother and a number of his friends in their late 20s and early 30s die from silence, from the institutions that were supposed to be protecting us, or at least serving us. So that was a long answer to your question. No, it's a beautiful answer. I mean, it's a beautiful answer. So again, if we go back to that quote where she says, uh, service of my vision, uh, that was super clear for you. Super clear for you, that vision. Is that accurate? 
yeah. And, and there's another layer to that. I'm going to get all spiritual with you for a moment here. Um, <laughs> Cause this is something I talk a lot about with my clients, um, but also other activists, like not just the organizational clients, but activists. I mean, because Scott, I, I imagine this might be true for you listening to some of your other podcasts, but I have my work and I have had the really good fortune. I mean, so incredibly good fortune to get paid for the things I care about. But whether or not I did, right, I have my work and then I have my life work. And it was happened in my career is that when my work did not serve my life work, I left the job, not the work. The spiritual part of that is um, I'm Jewish and there is a piece in Jewish mysticism that you, the word you might've heard of called tikkun olam, which essentially means to heal. Yeah, it, tikkun um, is to heal or repair and olam means the world. So the quote literally is to heal the world. And so this is a super important concept for me because it's Jews job, actually everybody's job to like, the idea is, is that, I'm getting all mystical, spiritual on you. That there is sort of a per, that there is sort of a perfect crystal of God and godliness in everyone and everything, and that when the world was created, that perfect crystal of God was fragmented in everyone and everything. And our job is to find that perfect crystal of God and godliness in everyone and everything, and bring the world back into wholeness. So. The, the piece for me around personal mission was not just about speaking, but also about as a change agent, even when somebody's in opposition, back in the day, it was Anthony Fauci who was in opposition that we needed to convince to, to be a leader on HIV. It's funny how things cycle. It was even when people are in opposition, how to know that they have that little fragment of godliness in them. So it's never seeing somebody as an enemy. And that framing through all of that work has also been a central, a central piece in how you approach everything. Yes. yes. It's a beautiful way because, I mean, it, that, that has to be so incredibly difficult when you're getting triggered, when you're working against, to your point, uh, systemic issues that are by design completely unfair and immoral and inappropriate and doing incredible damage to whole factions of people, right? Yes. <laughs> and what I know from my experience, and I've worked hard on this in my life, is that not coming from a place of love, uh, not, not like a superficial, oh, I love you because you hate me, right? <laughs> but, but that there is some thing in that person's being, in that heart that they care about, that they are deeply committed to. It might be very different than I am, but if I don't come from a place sort of of sort of more expansive kind of love, the hate will eat me up. It will bring me to a place that my nervous system will get overwhelmed. My cortisol levels will be high. I will get diabetes and heart disease. Like, you know, so many folks with marginalized identities, when we're not able to process stuff, it lands in our bodies and we have health impacts. Um, so it's partly an organizing strategy. Like how do I try to meet people where they're at, bring them along towards sort of a shared vision of how the world can be different. But frankly, it's also survival. 
you know, I'm not going to take on their hate and, and have it metastasize my body or the, my family or the people I love. It's beautifully said. Beth, as you think about, as you think about, uh, cause you had mentioned it was 1990 when your brother passed away, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. So as you think of the, of the last 30 years and the last 30 years, cause that's, we were talking a little bit before, before we were recording and, and you said, well, now what, what part of <laughs> my work do you want to talk about? <laughs> it's multifaceted. And, and so I, I, I said, I want to kind of focus on this activism piece. I want to speak with someone who's done the work and I want to speak with someone who's been engaged in that work for, for, you know, a, a period of time. And what reflections do you have? Are there two or three reflections? I mean, you in, in some ways, you just stated one of them about how you frame the work and how you think about it. And because I think that's that was beautifully said. Are there other things that come to mind for you as um, as you think about the work? And specifically around around the activism and, and equal rights and tackling some of these systemic issues that again, are doing great damage to whole factions of people. Yeah. One of the things, and this might tie along, um, you know, one of the things I said in that speech, which really I feel so, you know, people often talk about folks with marginalized identities, about how hard our life is. And one of the, I don't know, benefits or one of the strengths that um, I think I've gotten from being out as a lesbian, as a queer person since 1977, so it's been a, over 40 years that I've been out as a lesbian, is that there was, um, I kind of had to throw away a lot of the conventions of what I thought my life was going to be. Like all of those things I grew up that I was supposed to be weren't going to work. Um, and there is as sad and challenging as that was for a while, there's also a tremendous benefit in that. It's like, if I'm not going to fit any of those boxes, what do I want my life to be? And the, that coming out process that really was like, oh, how do I live an authentic life that is centered on love, passion, and not, I'm not just talking about sexual passion, but passion for like the world, love, passion, and commitment right? Which is what it really takes to do the coming out process and live with authenticity. Those are things that would drive my activism. Like, what does that mean to live a, a, have activism that is centered in love, passion, commitment, and authenticity? And how do I connect with other folks? So that's something that I've learned that connects. The other thing that I'll say that, that movements, and if folks are interested in this, there's stuff on my website about this, movements are not election cycles. Movements happened in 20 to 40 year arcs. So they're about long-term change. And one of the things I've learned about movements is that we often focus on movements in terms of policy. Did we win this election? Did we win this campaign? Did we not win this campaign? One of the things I've learned about movements is that it's not the policy, it's the narrative change. It's the cultural change. It's about how do we talk about our lives and do people see us through the way we see ourselves, right? So the shift for LGBT folks from being sick, sinful, criminal, and crazy, <laughs> which is what we were, yeah. we were six yeah. to folks that have, you know, when we were talking about marriage, we were talking about love and commitment. We're people who have love and commitment. We were shifting the narrative that activism is not what we're against. 
right? You know, what we're against motivates people to join movements, marches. What keeps people for long-term in movements is hope and vision for a better world that we can create together. Talk more about that. Talk more about, because that was beautifully framed, what keeps people committed long-term, right? Would you talk a little bit, maybe even tell a couple stories? Yeah, I mean, and this is, talking about the LGBT stuff, this is probably the easiest story to tell. I was chair of the board for the National LGBTQ Task Force when we lost marriage in 17 states. There is leadership for you. Right. We, there were 17 campaigns in 17 states and they weren't about giving us the right to marry. They were about putting constitutional amendments in so we couldn't get married. Right. And we lost 17 of those. And, you know, smart people, not just me. I was like, you know, there, but like, you know, were um, what we were doing was talking to people about we should be able to get married because we should have access to 1039 rights and responsibilities that you as heterosexuals have. And there's a right to marry. Yeah, like that didn't work. And then, you know, smart people said, you know what? First of all, heterosexuals don't think of their marriages as rights and responsibilities. (laughs) Duh. And that's an intellectual argument, right? It doesn't really say what we're for. And so what, what is a powerful narrative that is true? It can't be made up about what we're really after. You know, we're really after a world in which people who love each other and are committed to each other are able to support their families in that love and commitment with a bucket of social, with a bucket of social benefits that we get through marriage, right? I mean, it's like, yeah. oh, it's like, oh. Right. I get that. We want to live in a world of love and commitment. That framing. Yeah, that framing. Right. Right. Yeah. Another one. <laughs> I, live, yeah, uh, yeah. In, I, I live in Minneapolis, as you know. I live about a mile and a half from Worcester, where Mr. George Floyd was murdered. Um, I live in the neighborhood. Um, you'll recognize this from being in Minneapolis. I live right near Lake and Hiawatha, which is, for your listeners, where most of the fires were those first few days, the uprising, it's where the third police precinct was, where Derek Chauvin used to be an officer. Um, so this year, you know, impact <laughs> around the racial justice in a, right, in a very intimate kind of way. And I've spent, you know, some time at George Floyd Square. So the reason I give you that context is that we've, those of us, you know, I've been doing racial justice work, racial equity work for a long time. It's one thing to say we are committed to anti-racism. So that's an anti-message, right? And yes, bad racism, bad. We're against it, right? People can join out of anger about watching Mr. George Floyd get murdered. They can say we're against police brutality. But what are we for? So the framing of Black Lives Matter is actually brilliant because what would it really mean if we had every single one of our social policies say that Black Lives Mattered, not that they were tolerated, not that we're accepting of people who are racially different, 
But what if we absolutely had policies and practices said your life mattered? And it's not just that all lives matter, because everybody's life matters. But if you sort of say this country was founded on 400 years of slavery, and these folks' lives didn't matter, and it's encoded in law that these folks' lives didn't matter, what would it mean to say they did matter? Right? I mean, that's beautiful framing. And let me just say one other thing about that. One of the things that, that um, in my work I talk a lot about is this sort of concept of universal design. So universal design from the disability rights movement is the idea if you sort of hold the people who have least access at the center of your transformational change, you actually create something sure. better for everybody. So hmm. the concept in the disability rights movement is like the curb cut. It was made for people in wheelchairs. Like who benefits? Everybody. Everyone. Right. The elderly. Right. When your kids were little, right? When your kids were little, Scott, and you're using the stroller, right? Yeah. right? Yes. So if we know, and we've got so much data on this, that racial disparities, particularly for black folks, are the folks who are most marginalized by school policy, health policy, and we hold black folks at the center of our planning, using a universal design strategy, we actually develop something better for everybody. Because what happens is white folks like me are like, well, what about us? Our lives matter. It's like, yes. But if we put these folks who have been most marginalized at the center of our planning, you're going to benefit too. So that was a very long answer to your question. No, it's a, it's a, I, I had not heard of that concept or even thought of that in that way. And, and so I very, very much appreciate it. I really do. I had a wonderful conversation probably before this episode will be uh, a gentleman named Robert Livingston. He's at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. And, and he too was, you know, framing things in ways that were so powerful that uh, because I think one of my favorite quotes, and I've said it on the podcast before, is every system is perfectly designed for the results that it achieves. I use that quote. So too. here we are. Yeah. Right. I mean, right. so you know, planet Earth. We can look at it at that level. Here we are. That's great. Uh, but we can also look at it. You know, Scott's at about two fifteen right now. Doesn't want to be that system. I got a perfect system in place for two fifteen. I got to get down to about one eighty five. <laughs> but. When you talk about some of the systems that we're that we're speaking of right now, here we are. And w- what do we need to shift, alter, and how? And and what I love about how you're communicating right now, Beth, is is how do we need to frame a future and and frame some of these things because I think oftentimes they're framed poorly, so that they create walls in the minds of the people we're trying to influence. Does that make sense? Totally. Totally. Um, I think, you know, there's such a scarcity mentality, right? Rather than sort of, um, and that's one of the things I've also learned as an organizer is that if we come at trying to make transformational change with a scarcity mentality rather than an abundance piece, it, it just reinforces an us versus them. It's like as if there was a pie, and now these people are getting the piece of my pie, and I'm going to get less. And unfortunately, without getting too into you know electoral politics, the eat the the narratives of the last 
not just four years, but the last 20 years has been this us versus them, the pie's not big enough um, kind of narrative. And it really gets in the way of um, the phrase I use, Scott, is it colonizes our imagination. And Ooh, say more about that. Well, it, it's, it's like we're in the mindset that it's us versus them. There's a scarcity of resources. And, then, and this is part of what the anti-framing does. I'm against this, right? And as soon as we're in that space, it colonizes our imagination and we can't think outside that box. So this is part of the every system is quizly designed to produce the results it gets. If we've got a scarcity mentality, that system is designed for us not to think transformationally. You know, we think yeah. transactionally about the kind of changes yes. that are possible and our imagination gets colonized and then limited. What other themes or lessons or even questions do you keep coming back to? We've got a lot of challenges right now. I have, I have a lot of questions about what, how to be an elder to the next generations of activists. And what I mean by that is not like, here, I was a leader. Let me tell you what you need to know. That's not what I mean. Yeah. I, don't, I don't take it that way, but yeah. But I think sometimes that's what we think. It's like, oh, they don't know when we need to tell them. You know, we have um, left them a world or, or leaving them a world that has both advanced in particular ways and is really screwed up in other ways. And so as um, somebody of my age, I, I just turned 62, which is like kind of amazing. Yeah. So as somebody is my age, and I've been in a movement in one way or another since 1980, um, really thinking about, okay, what have I learned? But how am I going to get out of their way? You know, there's that song in Hamilton that Burr and Hamilton sing to their kids where they're like, you know, we've fought and died for you. We're going to, you know, you're coming of age in this, you're going to come of age in this country we made and you're going to blow us all away. I think about that, like for young LGBT folks, they're coming of age in this world that when I was coming up, I could not even have imagined. No, could not even have imagined that we'd be able to get married, that people are putting pronouns in their signature lines, that the Supreme Court would have a positive decision about our uh, totally outside my imagination. So they're coming of age in this world, right? And they're going to blow us away. Um, so for me, the question is, how do I support them, not get in their way and pass on information that would be helpful to them? I, I sit with that a lot, that question. So what are you thinking? What are you some, What are some of your intuitions? Well, I think it's really important to be in cross-generational relationships, <laughs> um, first of all. Yes. Like, yeah. Like relationships, not like I'm in front of yes. a room and I'm going to teach you, but relationships. Yes. Yes. And and I, I agree strongly with that only because, you know, as I work with, with students, you have to my, – my, my friend Tony has a quote, I don't know better, I know different. And I love the spirit of that quote, because it's if you enter the space of a classroom or working intergenerationally with that spirit, even for some of my mentors who are in their 80s, it's, it's I don't know better, I know different. And that spirit opens and keeps a lot of possibilities in place, right? Totally, totally. And, and, and part of that is then how to, it's like, 
I know different. And then how do I take responsibility for um, my power as I'm in those relationships? Mm. Right. Mm. Whether it's power that is around age or degrees or about race, particularly, you know, in cross racial, cross generational kinds of things. Like, how do I, it's about really being, you know, for me, trying to take responsibility and be accountable for that stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm, I think that's an important piece. Let me let me just share with you if I can go off on a slight tangent around this. There's this, I'm kind of a geek about social movement theory. So I was an activist for like 25 years before I knew there was such a thing as social movement theory in sociology, right? I don't know if you've run across this stuff in your social stuff. But there's this thing in social movement theory called political generations. So it's not just age, but one of the things that political generations theory says is that Whenever you came to political consciousness, and a political with a small p, not like party politics, meaning that you understood that your life and things about your life occurred in systems, like that policy systems, political systems. Whenever what was going on at that time in terms of how people understood power and their relationship to it kind of impacts how they think about power and their relationship to it. It, in different parts of their life. And just by example, I used to teach an LGBT social movement class, LGBTQ social movement class at the university. And I used to do this exercise where I asked my students, so what was going on in the world when you first understood that your life, there were systems and policies and politics influence your life? And this was a while ago. And there were some people in the class and they were only like difference in like five years of age, but some people it was it was Columbine, right? And yeah, that was what it was. They were young, and it was Columbine. For other folks in the class, it was Obama's first election. You could tell this was a while ago, right? And so we then asked. I then asked him. So what did you learn about power and people in power? from those experiences, the folks who came of age where Columbine was their defining experience said, the world's screwy, it's dangerous. People in power are here to keep us safe. And you got to listen to what they say. It was more complicated than that. People who came of age where Obama's first election, it was people in power are screwy. And we've got to take to the streets and we have the power to change things. They were only five years different in age. Yeah. And it's framed so differently, right? Yeah. So I think about that with this generation who's coming of age during the racial justice uprisings. Like, what are they going to learn about yeah. power versus the folks who maybe came of age in 2016 as Trump was being elected? Like, what did they learn about power? Mm. Um, yeah. So these are the kinds of things that's, I think about. That's so interesting to think about. I, I guess I, I don't even know how I'd answer that question, I, Beth. It, what's it's real, say the question again, and I'm going to try and answer it from my own from my own self. So, what was well, when what was going on when you first came to consciousness that your own life or situation was impacted by systems of policy of politics that there was something going on in the greater world that impacted you? Yeah. I'm 72. I was born in 72. So what came to my, the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, nuclear war, the, the fear of nuclear war in the late seventies and early eighties of that the Russians could, could bomb us. 
right? And and um, so that that for some reason came to mind for me. Yeah, and so how did that impact you, Scott? If at all, what do you think? Well, I don't. I think I had a pretty sheltered existence, of, and so it felt far away. Certain, it, it, it felt far away, but it was also somewhat scary in the sense that, you know, oh, there's these things called nuclear weapons, and we have them, and they have them, and we could annihilate one another, and so for some reason, that's the that's the narrative that comes to mind for me. But yeah, I think it's I think it would be because it was that whole era when, uh, and and. As a Minnesotan, you can at least appreciate. I don't know that you were living in Minnesota at the time, but the lore around, you know, the the U.S. hockey team beating the Russians, and that was such a big conflict. And a bunch of those people were from the Minnesota area and Boston, and hmm. And it's so interesting how those frame, how those how those experiences uh, kind of impact our life. What was it for you? Was it Vietnam? Yeah, it was Vietnam, and it was this idea that um, you know we could we could take to the streets, we could do stuff, we could make change. Yeah, yeah, I was I was talking to somebody this morning, actually, I was doing I have a little bit of a history of doing some work in Norway. And I was talking to a colleague in Oslo this morning, the, the miracles of zoom. And yes. we were actually talking about this, because we were because we were talking about sort of fear and anxiety that is about COVID, but also how close they are to Russia. And she was talking about similarly, she's about the same age you are around coming of age during that time in Norway and knowing that, yeah. you know, where the missiles were coming from and that she's really aware of a certain level of anxiety right now as things heat up with Putin again. And she was thinking yeah. about how did that impact her work? So, I mean, it would, hmm. it's, it's just interesting, you know, about how much fear versus empowerment gets into our sense of what change can we make in the world? Yeah. Well, even my children who are 11 and 13, twin girls that are 11, our, our son's 13, you know, the, the, the COVID experience that's going to, I mean, it'll, it'll shift their course of life. It just will. Uh, as will and climate change. Right? As will climate change. Yes. Yes. So that's what I mean by we, we've left them a world that has some strengths and is kind of screwy. So anyway. <laughs> we have left an imperfect system. <laughs> totally. It's not, oh. Well, okay. Question for you. So what have you been reading lately or streaming or listening to consuming that has caught your eye? You thought, oh, wow. And it could have something to do with what we've discussed today. It may not have anything to do with that. But is there anything that stands out for you? Well, I'm, um, besides it, that I've listened to a few of your podcasts lately, um, the part of the way I've gotten through COVID and frankly, the Trump years is there is a podcast that I listen to called, I'm doing a shout out for them, Gastropod which is a podcast about the science of and history of food. And they completely talk about it through like a race and class lens. It's, and I cook and it's one of the ways I stay sane. And so I'd, I'd be like on Zoom for five or six hours a day talking about racial equity. And then I'd walk my dog along the Mississippi, right? You know, I live right near West River Road. 
And I put my earbuds in and I listened to an episode of Gastropod. Completely got me through. So Isn't there's that. Isn't it so interesting? Isn't it so interesting how our lives have those? I mean, I love in your bio, by the way, where you talk about eating too much kale. Yeah, 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 <laughs> totally, totally. We grow a ton of kale, a ton of kale. Yeah, we don't have a garden. We have like a small farm, I think. <laughs> yeah. We just planted 30 tomato plants, just saying, 30. 30. Um, and the other thing I have to say that has gotten me through is um, – I am a total Star Trek geek. And um, Oh nice. Yeah, total. I mean like there there's a station in the Twin Cities, there's 5 hours of Star Trek on every single night. It starts with original, goes to Enterprise, goes to Deep Space <laughs> 9, goes to Voyager, <laughs> like all of them. And then like there's Discovery and there's Picard. I mean there's like seven versions of Star Trek you can watch right now. And and there's something yeah, you know, I it it, it it's good. Sci-fi is good, you know. It it and and it's meaningful because it's sort of like what is the vision for a future that could be different than this, right? Well, I mean, we could get into a really fun long conversation about there was a beautiful film. Oh my gosh, her name is escaping me right now. She played Uhura. The actress who um, played Uhura. Michelle Nichols. Okay, have you seen that documentary about her? No, I haven't. A recruiting actually. for NASA. You know What's it that called? that show was so. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm gonna I'll look I'll it put up. it in the show notes. Okay, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Okay, she was NASA commissioned her to really help them recruit a diverse population of astronauts because they were all white men, and NASA approached her and said, "Look, we 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 need we know we need to recruit." Um, in in different ways and get to different communities. And she was incredibly instrumental in really helping NASA do that. It's a beautiful documentary. There's a small documentary film festival in my, in my town. And and so we took our kids to watch that. And, you know, in the, in the documentary, it talked about how she was one of the first, if not the African-American who was featured on a weekly Yep. episode of a television show. And if you yep. look at the spirit of Star Trek and the diversity of the many different characters working together with their different strengths and at times having conflict and misunderstandings, but I very much connect and resonate with Star Trek. Yeah. Years ago, there was a panel at the University of Minnesota that, that uh, uh, Lewis Gates, Skip Gates was on. And there was a young person in the audience who, you know, screwed up you know all of his courage and he raised his hand he's going to ask a question of skip gates right i was like wow and he raised his hand he said i I, I," and he he paused and he said i just want to get a picture of what you're talking about like what kind of world are you saying we could live in um all i can think of is like the bridge of the starship enterprise is that what you're talking about skip gates is back and he goes actually yes that's exactly, <laughs> that exactly what I'm talking about. Because, you know, you think about a horror and you've got, you know, Chekhov and you've got like, you know, the yeah. Vulcan and you also have yeah. the prime directive, which is we are not yeah. going to screw with somebody else's culture. Like we're going to respect yeah. it. And it's like, and Skip Gates is like, this is exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's wonderful. One of the, one of my favorite films growing up was, you know, Wrath of Kong and, and, and mm-hmm. Search for Spock. And, 
Yeah. You know, I was talking with a, a an individual the other day because you know there's the Star Wars and the Star Trek people have a thing sometimes, I, and I'm just like, can't we all just enjoy both because they're both special in their own way? But I, I very much and 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 again, a lot of the next generation was when I was in college, so we would sit around and watch the next generation. <laughs> well, they're all on Netflix and Prime right now. I'm just saying. <laughs> so that's what I do. I, I listen to podcasts about that's what I and do. I watch Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was funny because before before we started and and you said, oh, I have to go back and look at that speech that I gave because I I pulled some content from that speech, that quote. And I, I, I was going to say to you, but I didn't say it. I was going to say, I'm not going to go Star Trek on you and ask you about paragraph four in scene three. You know? <laughs> Remember that skit on Saturday Night Live where they <laughs> – yeah. Yeah. William Shatner's like, get a life. Yeah. Move out of your parents' basement. <laughs> Totally. Oh. totally. Beth, I, I am so thankful for our conversation today. It's a great way to start our, well, for us and listeners, you will be in the future, but for us, it's the, the 4th of July weekend in the States. It's a long weekend for many people. And uh, so it's a great way to start the weekend. And I, I thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for just such a wonderful conversation. And I'll put all of your information in the show notes so people will know how to get in That's touch right. with you and, and connect. And just thank you so much. I appreciate that. Uh, it's been fun. It's been fun. And, you know, this is <laughs> happening at the tail end of Pride Week. So it's great. It's all good. I love it. I love it. Okay. Be well. I was saying to a friend over the weekend that one of the things that makes me feel most alive in my work life right now is this podcast, the opportunity to connect with individuals who are thinking about leadership, who are engaging in leadership, who are making a difference in the world. And I just love it. I get excited. I mean, literally this morning, I, I re-listened to this episode and have so much respect for uh, the wisdom of Beth. It was just such an incredible conversation. And at least for me, some of the practical wisdom tips that come out of this, the concept of universal design, you know, putting the people with the least access at the center, uh, her framing of what we are for, I thought that was really, really an interesting way. Uh, her, her notion that this is not an election si cycle, this is long-term work that, that occurs over decades and shifting the mindset and shifting the culture, it's, it's long, long term, it's long term work. And also this notion of an abundance mindset that we don't have to lose for others to gain. And I think it's beautifully said. Beth, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for colonizing my mind with really good stuff that will forever shift and shape how I think about activism, how I think about movements, how I think about uh, benefiting the whole so that all of us uh, live in a just world where we can thrive and be who we want to become. You, my friend, have just finished another episode of Phronesis Practical Wisdom for Leaders. To get in touch with me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. 
I can also be found on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Now, if you have feedback, I would love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Phrenesis. If you like Phrenesis, I have a second podcast. It's called the Captovation Podcast. That's with an O, Captovation Podcast, where I speak with experts on the topic of designing and delivering incredible presentations. And now, Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.